The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is cardiologist Barry Silverman. Barry is author of a book called Your Doctor's Manners Matter, Better Health Through Civility in the Doctor's Office and in the Hospital. Well, Dr. Silverman has had over three decades of cardiology experience. He's a cardiologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and has teaching appointments at Emory University, completed his residency and fellowship at Vanderbilt University Hospital and at Johns Hopkins. Welcome to the show, Dr. Silverman. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, the topic, your doctor's manners matter, which I do believe they do, Better Health Through Civility in the Doctor's Office and in the, office, in the Hospital. That's the title of the book. And one of the biggest complaints, doctor, that we hear about medical care today, uh, which is pretty obvious that the manners of doctors and even other healthcare professionals uh, are, are really very poor. I mean, in the past, doctors were revered figures, made house calls. They always seemed to have a cure for whatever was wrong with us. You know, the doctor... Marcus Welby type physician, but this image has no longer persists. It has everything has changed. It seems doctors are rude, arrogant, with little time for patients. I'm setting this whole thing up for you, um, and so obviously there's been a real 180 in terms of doctors' manners and civility. So can we start with what happened? Well, how do we get here? Well, it's a complex story. Certainly, uh, doctors have come down from their pedestal, and uh, the technology has changed. So before, when doctors had little to offer, uh, they spent more time with the patients. Today, for example, uh, heart catheterization and angioplasty, the patient is in and out of the hospital in less than 24 hours, sometimes doesn't even stay overnight, where before, if a patient had heart pain, they might be in the hospital for days or weeks. And so with those shortened interactions, often the doctor is not spending time with the patient, and the result is they're not building a relationship. And the consequences are often poor quality care. So, Dr. Silverman, would you say, I mean, this kind of ties in with what you're saying, I think, is there's also uh, we physicians specialize, so you obviously aren't going to spend a lot of time necessarily, unless you have something horrifically wrong with you, uh, with your dermatologist or your your ophthalmologist, uh, whereas in maybe 40, 50 years ago, you were with a primary care physician most of the time, and that was the person who took care of all your ailments, so you had an opportunity to develop a relationship. So the, the, the circumstances are different. Right? I mean, in terms of. Well, certainly, subspecialty has made a difference. But also, there is a sense on the medical side 
that delivering a technology or providing a service is what's necessary. Doctors are not taught bedside manners in medical school. Uh, they just observe them. And with the interactions and the changes occurring so rapidly, there's less to observe. And um, they're not experiencing why it makes a difference, and it really does make a difference, Catherine. For example, a patient who had ovarian or uh, uterine cancer, rather, and had a post-op complication and called her doctor who said, well, that's not my problem, call your internist, and she ended up dying of those complications because he wasn't attentive and concerned about her uh, and didn't uh, really take responsibility. So communication is more important than ever, but the course of medical technology has caused that communication to become less intense and uh, often to completely disintegrate. Well, I want it's to really talk in my role that I've had as chief of cardiology where I saw that so many patient care problems were related to bedside manner, not to providing uh, good medical care or to malpractice, not knowing what to do. It was not being concerned and listening to the patient. Well, in my experience, and, and as a social worker, I had most of my experience when I did my clinical work with hospital social work, and I couldn't agree with you more uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the relationship and the communication between doctor and patient really does facilitate their well-being. I mean, patients will listen to doctors even in terms of complying, in terms of taking their medication if, if they have a good relationship with their physician. I mean, it, it applies, you know, in terms of taking care, their own self-care is better. Um, well, you know, we point that out in the book that a patient is not going to follow the doctor's advice if they don't trust him and that adherence to advice is one of the major problems where medical care breaks down uh, so that there has to be trust and there has to be communication, and that cannot occur in one or two minutes. It takes really attention and uh, a real bedside interaction. But we don't have, do we? Do, I mean, that's, say, in hospital, but let's take it out of the hospital and put it into the doctor's office. Every time I, I don't think my, sometimes I think this is a positive thing, but my doctor doesn't remember me because I'm not really that ill, because oh, I'm not ill, so I have my yearly checkup, let's say. Uh, with a couple of physicians, and uh, I mean, they do remember me, but it's kind of just, it's routine, it's 15 minutes, um, and they're not necessarily nasty or rude, we just don't have much of a rapport, and I, I individually, I got, get to the point, well, well, I don't really care either, I mean, just do the test, and if they come out okay, then fine and goodbye. Now, if I had some, you know, some kind of a, something really wrong on a long-term basis, then you really do need that. Uh, kind of communication. Maybe you don't need it with that kind of a situation, do you? Well, the fact is you do. That When you come in, we now know the um, United States uh, Survey and Preventive Medicine will tell you that most of these tests you get are not really helpful. The most important interaction in that office is your doctor listening to you. So if you've been having some problems with some vague chest pains or uh, your bowels have changed, that they're picking up on those. So if they're not listening to you and taking the time, then they're going to miss important aspects of your health that could down the road lead to serious problems. So that yeah. blood test, that x-ray, that scan, they are very unlikely to uh, demonstrate. And both the patient and the physician have developed too much confidence in the technology. 
don't really realize that it's a bedside communication that is 90% of uh, medical information. So why is this happening? It seems to me that it's continuing. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. There's more of a... I think a, a trend to rely on all of these tests, although there I got my AARP thing. Well, it's happening said, for a number of reasons. Yeah, One, and it was saying, hey, there are care. 10 tests here. You shouldn't be, de- not nece- they're not necessary to, you know, to take or to have every year or even every two years. So, um, how do you, so what do we do? And you, in reality, you do only have about 15 minutes with your physician. That's right. That's the reality. That was one reason we wrote the book. There was no instruction book of what you should expect from the doctor. And the doctors, because of changes in training, changes in managed care, they're going through a change. With the electronic medical record, many doctors are spending more time with the electronic medical record than talking to the patient. So we felt that the patients needed a guide of what they should expect from their visit. For example, we recommend that before you see the doctor, we encourage you to write a list of questions uh, that are your concerns about your health or things that you should or shouldn't do. And that way, when you see the doctor, he can look at that and address what he thinks is important. And if it's going to take more than 15 minutes, tell you that maybe he needs to schedule another appointment. Um, those are some of the uh, aspects. One of the things you mentioned that you worked in a hospital. Well, hospitals have dramatically changed with hospitals. So as soon as you go into a hospital, you lose your regular primary care physician and you're assigned another physician that's never seen you before. And he's often working with specialists and quickly patients don't know who's in charge, who ordered a test, or who's going to give them the answers or results. And so the book tries to explain what the role of the hospitalists and the specialists are and how patients should request to know who is in charge of their care and who's going to give them answers to their questions. Yeah, see, I would find that very helpful. I think that's a, you know, that, that's a really good thing. To, so before you go into the hospital, you have some idea of literally what you're getting into because once you get in there, you're very vulnerable. First of all, you're sick, so you're not at the top of your game. And to try and kind of navigate the system is not really the mindset that you're into. But I have another question for you, Dr. Silverman. Do you think that perhaps the kind of, you know, doctors aren't necessarily noted, and I'm not saying this doesn't reflect on you, for their great personalities. I mean, they don't necessarily, that's not one of the professions, particularly today, you know, there's not the Dr. Welby of yesteryear who was your primary care physician for everything. So maybe Part of the problem is the type of person who goes into medicine today may be very different in terms of his or her personality. Well, I teach medical students, of course, and my opinion is, is that they are as committed and dedicated today as they were 30 and 40 years ago when I was teaching them. Uh, a wonderful group. But you're right, they're really not picked on their personality. They're picked on their grades and their intelligence. So you get some people who are really not good people, persons. And today, the training has changed. They have so much more information that they have to be taught, so much more time uh, learning the technology and less time with patients because patients are moving through the clinics and the uh, hospital much faster than when we were younger where you had more time with patients. So they're not learning that interaction. 
you know, Catherine, it's really interesting. There's not an industry in America that pays less attention to the consumer's concerns than medicine. Maybe only the post office, which is changing, and the federal government. Uh, you know, we're closing we've them down. <laughs> from other businesses that consumer satisfaction has a lot to do with people feeling better about themselves and responding uh, in appropriate ways. All right, so give us some other, you know, some of the uh, examples in the book that, that you have. I mean, well, we ta- you talked well, about Well, we this. had a, a 90-year-old woman who had serious lung disease. She had uh, been uh, sick a number of times, and each time this remarkable woman, uh, she would seem to recuperate when she was hospitalized and treated. And she had a close relationship with her pulmonologist. And sure enough, she started to deteriorate, and the pulmonologist said, well, it looks like we have to go into the hospital again. And he admitted her to the hospital. He didn't tell her he was leaving for a vacation for two weeks. He didn't inform the doctors that were going to take care of her about his plan of care. So when she got into the hospital, he didn't show up. Because she was 90 years old and had a do-not-resuscitate order, the doctors saved her for the last patient of the day. The family could wait all day, and if they went to lunch or went home to do an errand, they could miss the doctor. Doctors made no um, effort to uh, contact the family. Because the doctors showed so little interest in the patient, the nurses started to show little interest, not responding to the calls. Um, this deteriorated over several days, and the patient uh, was getting worse, and the family thought she was dying. They went to the primary care doctor. And they said, look, we need another lung specialist. The lung specialist we had never showed up, and these doctors are not concerned. Well, he knew they were good doctors, and he called them, and he said, you know, you're not paying attention to this patient. And they hadn't even appreciated it. They just thought she was an old woman dying, and they didn't realize that she had no intention of dying. And when they started to pay attention to her and listen to the family, then the whole quality of her care changed, and she recovered again. So that's the kind of uh, kind of arrogance and concern where the doctor really didn't have a plan for his patient. We admitted her almost cost her her life. What about the, but, okay, that's, that's, and that's a good example, but that's also an example where the family or whoever her, her support system were, uh, were able to say, okay, this isn't, you know, we're not getting the care we need. Now, you get some families or some patients who are afraid to speak up who may be in that kind of situation, but they sort of just get overwhelmed and they don't feel that they are able to say anything for whatever the reason is. Um, well, how does that, what do they do? Well, Catherine, that's why we wrote the book, because there's no instruction book. We wanted the families to have something. That's why this book is directed at families and not doctors, because we thought doctors, while we try to teach them, are not going to listen. But families, when they have a book that says, this is what your doctor's responsibility is, he's not meeting this responsibility, you can point out that Dr. Adler and Dr. Silverman have indicated in print, this is the way you should behave. And uh, if they don't agree, they can at least discuss it, but it gives the patient some support and backup for uh, how they should be treated. And this includes when you go to the office, if you're unhappy with your bill, we talk in the book who you should talk with. If the nurse treats you rudely in the hospital, how you should deal with it. All these problems are very common. Uh, and uh, we try to have stories. We have one patient... Uh, 
who went to a doctor's office and was kept waiting for really over an hour, and the doctor never apologized. When he brought her in a room, he completely undressed this older woman and gave her a paper gown that was very flimsy. Uh, He started poking at her without telling her what he was doing. He ordered tests without explaining what they're for. And, uh, you know, she had a right to be angry. And the book helps her support that uh, this is not the way to be treated. Yeah, well, it's excellent because you do need guidelines. And as you just mentioned, some people need it more than others. I mean, I have a rule of thumb. This is just a personal antidote, but I go to my eye doctor to get my eyes checked, and he's an excellent doctor. But it seems to me that they overbook and they have too many people in the office. And I say, you know, if I have to wait more than... It gets over 20 minutes and it's getting into a half an hour. I I, I go up to the nurse and say I have to leave because I'm not going to stay there longer than a half an hour because my time is important just as the doctor's time is important. And I'm finding that more and more they seem to have, because once I I, I almost left, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, but it seems to me that they're doing better scheduling. Um, and I think that's another area because that's really saying we don't respect your time. We don't respect who you are. Um, you know, emergencies are emergencies, but that doesn't usually happen at the ophthalmologist. That's more at the gynecologist. So, I mean, there are those kind of situations Kevin, we, that happen in the waiting room. Uh, we talk about that. You know, an office has a culture. And if the people at the front desk are not friendly and the nurses don't treat you with a lot of respect, You can imagine uh, how are they going to do on calling up your orders or uh, following up on the tests that you've had to be sure they're checked. Those are the areas uh, that we consider part of bedside manners, part of respect for the patient that are critical to providing good care. And it really starts in the waiting room. You know, the problem, the deterioration of this has become so serious that the American boards of internal medicine are now requiring certain checks of patient satisfaction to be sure you can get your board recertification. I I think that's an excellent, obviously that's a good trend or that's a good direction to be going in. There's no question about that. I also think, um, you know, some doctors and some of these practices are huge practices, um, are better at running their businesses because medicine is also, on the other side of it, especially, I guess, with specialists, is a business. And so, um, you know, I've been to huge doctor's offices where whoever is managing it, and I guess sometimes they have MBAs doing it, but um, the businesses really run well. It may not be real friendly and hand-holding Marcus Welby, but it's respectful, it's well-organized, you, it's on time, whatever, you're at the service, etc., uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because there are big practices, and some are run really well, and others aren't. Well, um, I agree with you that it's true that large practices can bring professional organization that can really look and be sure that from the entering the waiting room to getting your bill to getting the results of your tests are done in a, in a well and organized way. Now, That's not always true, but for good examples of that are the Cleveland Clinic and the Mayo Clinic that do such a really superior job from the minute you get there to the minute you left and informing your doctors what they've done. Uh, So, But that's not to say that single practitioners are small groups, but the book kind of wants you to be aware that if you're 
physician is not capable of that, then you mean may need to be looking elsewhere because these are important aspects of your care. Um, and a disorganized doctor is going to be one that uh, misses something in the cracks, doesn't check on a test that was done, doesn't recognize a certain problem that could give you serious problems. So disorganization is a real critical factor in delivery of quality care. And, and would you say that delivery of quality care also has to involve the patient in the delivery of the care? They're part of the system. You have to incorporate. It's not like the doctor and then the patient, but they're really together and in, 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 in diagnosing you know, and, and treatment. It's a team. A team. We, on our uh, book chapter on the hospital, we talk about there's a team taking care of you and the patient is part of that team. And if the patient doesn't understand their role and are not included in decision-making in uh, what to do, uh, then they're not going to get better. And so medical care is a really team aspect. And we like to point out that it's like going to space or these things that are really complicated. And no longer is it the old doctor where you had this wonderful surgeon who was in command of everything and could do everything Medicine's got too complicated for that. Um, the surgery is a small aspect of what occurs. Now you have to be sure you don't get affected, you uh, recover appropriately, that your rehab is appropriate, and that all along the course of that, there are people watching and be sure you progress, and you need to know what your responsibilities. And it's not only the patient. In the book, we talk about how important it is to get the family involved. For example, in your office visits, we encourage you to, bring a family member with you or bring a close friend. So there's two sets of eyes and two sets of ears that are hearing what is going on in the office and what instructions you're being given. Now, have you found, you know, and well, obviously in the course of writing your book, and you've had a lot of experience, so you come at it from 30 years of experience. Um, do you find that people are doing that more and more, obviously with the help of your book, and the more people that have that in their hands, they'll be able to have that information and, and to do what you're saying. But, um, I mean, what's your experience? Um, my experience is that about 70% of my patients bring someone then to the office, that only about 5% come with a list of what their concerns are, that, um, you know, we have an office that's really focused around the patient. So... Um, we have a front staff that really tries to make them welcome when they come in the door. We uh, moderate the time so we know how long they've been waiting. Uh, and uh, when they, uh, after they're seen, uh, we have written instructions that they have. And then we have a whole team of nurses that follows up and be sure they get the results of their tests within 24 hours of the test being done and uh, communicates with them on how they're doing after they were seen in the office. Do you, re- do you a- actually, do you ever get, I mean, um, feedback from your, from your patients, or do you ask for feedback in, in terms of how, what, you know, in, in the office, how they feel they've been treated either by the staff or the physician or what their experience has been? Well, we do. We, uh, we have questionnaires that we give out maybe once or twice a year asking about the experience in the office. Uh, That's become important. Now, our practice, like you said, these large practices, our practice was bought by the hospital, 
And so the hospital now owns about or employs maybe five or 600 physicians. So it's become quite a large organized group. And uh, so these kind of uh, inputs of looking for patient satisfaction, looking for the times uh, that patients are waiting, uh, they have become a much more focused, important aspect of the delivery of care. You mentioned earlier that you said only 5% of the patients bring in questions or specific questions to, to ask um, you or ask the physician. But what about with the advent of the Internet? It would seem to me, don't a lot of patients come in with all kinds of information about what they think their diagnosis is or how it should be treated? Well, you know, the Internet is both positive and negative. Um, there's a lot of information out there, but there's a lot of bad information out there. And unless the patient has a lot of trust in their doctor, sometimes they're not sure whether the doctor is telling the truth or whether what they see on the Internet is the truth. So it can be very confusing and cause them not to follow through on therapies that are, might be necessary for uh, improving their health. So I think the Internet, and we give the patients when they're seeing a list of Internet sites that we think has a lot of good information. We write down technical names for their disease. Um, the uh, National Library of Medicine has a, a source for patients. The American Heart Association has a source for patients. So we want to give them sources that we think have quality information. And, yes, patients are demanding more information, and with less time in the office, one of the patient's responsibilities is that we want to give them ways to read that because we don't have time to go over all of the aspects that are important to them in the office. So you will actually give them links that are appropriate for whatever is ailing them. That's exactly right, yes. And I think that's important, today's medicine, because there is so much good information out there on the Internet. Let me, we only have a couple minutes left, left, and I want to mention the book again, Your Doctor's Manners Matter, Better Health Through Civility in the Doctor's Office and in the Hospital. Dr. Barry Silverman, you can buy his book online, I assume in bookstores everywhere. Um, and is there a website that... that uh, yes, we have a to? website, Your Doctor's Manners Matter. We have a blog site, uh, they're welcome, and... Um, I'll tell you, the book has been extremely popular with medical schools, and I've had a lot of training directors that are ordering copies for their doctors. So I hope that uh, we see that both doctors are reading it as well as, uh, as patients. But it really does serve as a helpful guide for patients to know whether they're being treated the way they should be treated. Yeah, and a real necessity. I was part of one of the clinical competency programs where you train doctors for bedside manners at Albany Medical College, which I think is becoming more popular. So your book is perfect for those kinds of training programs um, for both, actually, the trainees and the trainers, and these are second- and third-year medical students. But um, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you today. Um, did we leave any key point out? I don't want we we have a minute left, so if there is anything that that you want to mention, do it now. Well, I think uh, the key point is that the patient to get the best from their healthcare system has to expect that they're going to be communicated with and listened to. And if your doctor is spending more time with the computer than he is listening to your concerns, if you're not having eye contact. And we talk in the book 
the features that you should look for in your doctor that's going to be showing that he's really listening to you and concerned. And uh, that's what I encourage patients to get from the book. Great. Thanks so much, Dr. Barry Silverman. We Thank are going you to for take having it. me. Well, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me next is Lindsay Stanton. She's the founder of Digimi. Digimi. Lindsay Stanton, well, new studies from the Brookings Institute show an increasing number of college graduates, and I don't think this is a surprise, are facing a tougher time finding a job, and uh, in reality, your child's career could be in jeopardy. Um, The institutions such as the Brookings Institute are calling this generation the disconnected youth, and uh, apparently there is this kind of worrisome trend um, that the millennials are not able to find jobs and get on their career tracks. So who steps in but Lindsay Stanton, founder of Digimay, and she has a groundbreaking, or she has created this groundbreaking technology called Digimay to make it easier to connect the student and the employer. So she's going to tell you all about it. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start. What is it? What is it? And how do you do it? How do you connect these students who are looking for jobs? I guess specifically, or millennials, not necessarily millennials, but there are a lot of them, and they don't seem to be able to find the jobs they want, get into the careers they want. But you have a much better way of doing it. 
So, well, and exactly. I, so I think, you know, there's so much frustration on uh, both sides of the fence. The employers get very frustrated because they get inundated with resumes. Oftentimes, you know, people that don't have the right skill sets or aren't qualified for the position. And then on the other side, you've got the candidates who get very frustrated because they apply for the job and they never hear anything. They don't know what's going on. They don't know if they're being considered. They don't understand the kind of behind the scenes of the process. So the idea was um, to bring the candidates and the employers together through video instead of, you know, your typical text job board and um, make it a more dynamic approach and like kind of an easier marriage, if you will, between uh, the job seeker and the employers. So, all right, specifically, so how do you do it? I know some of the statistics that you've quoted that people are, are tend to focus more on videos than they do on text, that they, they get bored with reading text. And that exactly. If, yeah. Yeah, so um, it's really about, instead of, if you're thinking about, you know, looking for a career, most people think of sites like Monster and Career Builder where you're kind of sifting through all these written job descriptions, oftentimes that have a lot of redundancy and boring language in them that, you know, people might not even pay attention to. And uh, what we do is we help the employer create a video instead of text uh, that describes their position opening and the critical skills. And what that does on the candidate side is increases their learning and retention of the information by 60%. So you actually absorb that much more information when you view a video versus reading something in text. And that's probably pretty intuitive to most of us. That's why we go to sites like YouTube and Hulu to, you know, find out how to, you know, update our deck or cook the latest recipe. So it's just taking that and using it for the job search process. So, Lindsay, does that make it, like, much more specific and, uh, well, you don't waste as much time? I mean, I'm trying to think about it. So you see this video and you say, well, you you get more of a feel, this job is not for me, this company is not for me. Exactly. Yeah. So you're really saving time. The selection goes way up. Yeah, you're exactly right on both sides. So, you know, the, the employers are weeding through less resumes, so they're responding faster to the candidates. And the candidates understand, you know, whether or not they have the skills to really qualify for that job. So a lot of our employers will actually use it to, you know, make sure that they're increasing that self-selection rate. What kind of jobs are we talking about? Are there any kind of industries that you've honed in on, or are you talking about the whole gamut? Or talk specifically about some of the industries that you work with. Really good question. So um, we work with every different industry and every different level of position. Um, You know, the the fact of the matter is, you know, whether you're talking about an executive level role or, you know, a part-time hourly role, that increased learning and understanding of the job function is really applicable across the board. The other element that comes into it that um, most people probably don't realize, but once you describe it to them, it's, you know, it makes sense, is that... um, When you go to Google to look for a job, which is where over 80% of job seekers will start their process, video actually outranks text by 53 times. So we're helping those employers get front and center in front of the right candidates because those are the candidates that are typing in, you know, that uh, whether it's, um, you know, a Java developer role or, you know, any specific search that they're typing in, that employer is going to come up front and center. And on the candidate side, it's 
been much easier to find a job because instead of just having to go to one website to find a job like Monster or Career Builder, you can really find a job anywhere because our videos go through social media sites like Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, candidates are using their cell phones to find the jobs because the videos are mobile enabled. So it really is helping that process on both sides of the fence. Well, do you think you're going to revel? It sounds like you're going to revolutionize the way people search for jobs and employees hire, hire, um, do their hiring. Are you the first that's, to do this? Are that's you, what are we're you, hoping. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so tell, give me the history of this. How did this start and what's your background? I mean, where, sure. where, yeah, where'd you come from? <laughs> so I can't take the credit for the creation. Our CEO is the brainchild, and he came from Procter & Gamble, so he's got a really great background in um, product distribution and creation. Uh, but the idea really was, you know, about making the process more simple. And with that uh, came the technology. So I came on board. I, I We launched in 2008. I came on about six months after the launch and really have been focused on uh, working with our large global partners and using the information that they provide us as well as, you know, kind of where we see the space morphing to build out the technology because, the technology is really the differentiator on, on both sides because, you know, the things like the, the search engine optimization and being able to connect with people through sites like Google um, just differentiates and puts the employer on a whole new level. Um, I'm lucky enough to work with some of our largest accounts. We do a lot of work with Fortune 1000 companies um, that really want to have their brands stand out along with their jobs, you know, have people understand their culture and who they are because that's such an important part, especially back to your lead-in when you're talking about the millennials and having the younger generations understand, you know, those critical elements of the next move for their career. Well, is it only the millennials or the Gen Xs, or how does this work, let's say, for the baby boomers? The non-tech... Go ahead, ahead. sorry. No, I was just uh, adding that, you know, they're not as technically savvy necessarily, but certainly looking for jobs at age late 40s and 50s and right. changing jobs, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's honestly, that's probably an area where we see mobile come into play the most. Um, you know, you would kind of assume, oh, well, the millennials obviously are going to be viewing videos on their cell phones. But if you're looking at those senior level positions, it's the same, actually, uh, because Chances are, you know, they probably are gainfully employed. They're very mobile. Um, they're going to be, you know, traveling frequently. And so being able to reach those uh, those prospective candidates is really important to hit them on their cell phone um, and get their attention. That's the big uh, That's the big thing with, you know, the executive position. Well, you know, you talk about, and I think maybe uh, I you mentioned this as well, but... Um, the people's attention span is so short, and so how the thing works and how it operates, if you can't see the video in three seconds, you're gone. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, I just look at my own shopping behaviors, and if the site doesn't load quickly, I'm out of there, you know, even if it's something I really want. So, um, you know, it's the same thing, obviously, with uh, with jobs. You know, you want to get them to the video. It needs to be able to load and open quickly. And then they need to be able to respond to it. So the candidates can actually apply for the job right off the video itself. 
what about problems? What would have been some of the biggest problems? I mean, can you share that with us? Because obviously, this is 2008, you said you started, so it's been a while. Um, some of the glitches that you've had to, to work with or to change. You know, it's just been more of a gradual um, build, honestly. Um, I don't know if we've really had any specific problems. Probably the biggest challenge, honestly, was educating employers on doing things differently because when, you know, when you have an industry where people have done things the same way for, you know, year after year, obviously, you know, bringing in a completely new technology um, without any competition, education is such a critical piece to it. So I think, you know, that that was the biggest, although I will say the industry just, I would say in the last year has made a huge move and everybody understands that uh, that video is such a superior way to connect. So um, it's been a lot easier process. But we've been lucky enough to get some really large organizations on board very early, and um, that creates credibility. You're working with these Fortune 1000 companies, so I'm imagining, at least as you're describing it, you go around and, and, and what, ed- educate them or give uh, training, whatever, however you do, to, to uh, training programs, or how does that work? Well, um, we have quite a few trade associations in our space, so uh, I've been lucky enough to be invited to speak at quite a few events. I think I had about 13 speaking engagements last year because uh, we are, you know, so unique in the space. It does give us a nice opportunity to present to organizations and educate them on how they can do things differently. And we found that once companies come on board with us, they grow significantly very quickly because they see how superior it is because not only are they um, engaging with better candidates quicker, but um, our platform also includes in-depth tracking that shows them exactly what websites are driving the best response rates and engagement from the candidate side so they can be more strategic in where they're placing their videos future state. And then also, I guess, I mean, how does this work in a global way? Is it different? You know, because obviously it's the whole world who's using this. So, yeah, Um, are there differences in terms of countries or, you know, or is it just really kind of the same process? You know what? It's a that's a really good question. Um, I think uh, it, it's almost more applicable when you go outside the United States, honestly, especially when you look at um, areas like Asia, where you've got such you know dense population in such a small, you know, relatively tight area. Um, the mobile phone is the number one place that they're going to be accessing content. And you know, once you go outside of the U.S., a lot of people don't even have access to an actual computer. So everything they're doing is off of mobile. So that's probably the biggest difference is, you know, kind of how they're accessing that content, but the adoption is very high when you get outside the U.S. So what you're doing, Lindsay, is actually creating more competition because <laughs> you've got more people now who are going to be able to do this because they can use the videos, as you say, um, but then you're also creating a bigger pool for companies to choose from. Yes, and on on the candidate side, I think, you know, the market is starting to shift where we're seeing uh, more and more organizations start to hire in volume. And um, I think, you know, with that, it it starts to to shift a little bit more to um, an employee-centric model versus an employer um, getting to decide. And we're seeing that. I mean, especially in highly competitive areas, uh, one of the biggest areas of growth we see right now is um, engineering. They're 
so many companies um, competing for engineering talent out there. Uh, another area that's uh, really competitive right now is um, CDL drivers. So you don't necessarily even have to, you know, have a college degree to be able to drive a really nice salary because there's so much competition for, for those types of positions. Well, take us through, or we'll take, say, the engineering. The first example you get, uh, I'm an engineer, I'm looking for a job. What do I do by going through this process? I mean, really specifically, uh, you know, I'm sitting here at my computer. Sure. Yeah, what do I do? Well, you'd probably start your search on Google, and if you had typed in, you know, a specific type, whether it was like a plant engineer, electrical engineer, um, you'll, you'll start to see the videos popping up. Our website, uh, digi-me.com, actually shows up really high when you type in a search as a candidate because it is all video content. So um, if you came across our website, you'd actually have the ability to register and receive job feeds. And we can send the candidates job feeds through um, an email, but we can also send them feeds through text messaging through their mobile phone. So a lot of candidates like to you know opt into that because then literally every time we're adding a new employer with, you know, that's retiring for that type of position, you are going to get a job alert and you're going to find out about that new job and have the chance to apply for it right off the video. So what about competition? I just kind of, I think I asked it sort of in the background before, but now since you've been started this in 2008, any kind of competition out there for you? I mean, because this really, it seems to me, would really catch on. I mean, this is just sort of hitting the nail on the head for this connecting employers and job seekers. So what about, are there any other, not that you have to mention them by name, but are there any other companies? Yeah. You know, we really don't have any competition. And one of the things that we pride ourselves on is um, we're agnostic. So we can work with um, the employer's existing system. So um, most employers are using uh, what's called an applicant tracking system to manage their, you know, candidate flow and their, I guess, inventory of candidates, if you will, um, those resumes. And uh, so we can fully integrate within the environments that they already have. So that's... uh, that really kind of eliminates us going head-to-head with a lot of other vendors or, you know, competitors in the space because um, we really can play nicely with those. We like to say we play nicely in the sandbox with everybody because <laughs> we really we really can. And we can even partner up. So some of our clients will be uh, using a video interviewing technology. So uh, once that candidate does apply for the job, you know, kind of taking it one step further and using video for that piece. So we can even uh, partner up with that type of technology to make the candidate experience video all the way through. This makes the whole searching for a job thing kind of exciting, interesting. You know, I think uh, you know the traditional way of doing it is so tedious. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and because you're looking, you know, you're on, I, I always think of it as, you know, if for my candidate side, it's one-dimensional. I mean, you're just sifting through job after job and, you know, reading very similar text over and over again and um, being able to have somebody talk to you about uh, the employer and then the job itself. To me, I, you know, really look at um, the cultural videos that we do, those employment branding videos, and you can look at a video from one employer versus another and say, you know what, I know I would fit within that environment or, you know what, that would not be a good fit for me. And it really comes out through the video so much better. 
What about this? Is do you think it, some people have a, are able to make better video, are better on camera? Uh, you know, they're just better at being able to project what they're trying to to get across. But maybe, and this is just coming from somebody who's done a lot of videos and film and stuff. That um, that perhaps it's not necessarily. Uh, reflects the company, just reflects that they're really good at doing a presentation. Does that ever fit into it? Am I am I being clear? You know what I'm. Well, um, we use we use only professional talent to communicate the job message for an employer, so it kind of takes that <laughs> questionable <laughs> element out of it. Um, for when they're communicating their employment brand, yes, often you know they're obviously using their own people and their employees, but. Um, most, you know, decent-sized organizations will have, um, you know, people inside that, that are proficient on camera and do a very good job of presenting. And some of the some of the best people to have on camera, quite frankly, are, you know, the, the line leaders, the people that are in the organization actually doing the work and having them talk about what drew them to the organization because it just brings a certain level of authenticity to the company's message. Yeah, there's a reality to it, and of course, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I would think that that would be much more telling, uh, you know, to have the actual people who are working there. Um, it's really exciting. And just, you know, a couple more minutes. What about you? How did you get into? You know, we started I, asking you that question, but um, your background in oh yeah, <laughs> you did answer that. Sorry, yeah, we got lost. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, I've got a mixed uh, background in sales and marketing. I've actually got my master's in public administration, did a brief stint uh, working for a, a municipality handling economic development. So I've kind of been all over the board. I've adapted to uh, the recruiting space and um, really like it. I mean, the technology piece is uh, really what excites me because when you can look at what tools are going to make that process so much better for both the employer and the employee. That's very exciting to me. Um, one of the things that we launched uh, last year was the ability to have the candidate actually receive a video message back once they apply, setting the expectations of what's to follow. Because, um, you know, that black hole that I kind of mentioned on the candidate side earlier most candidates don't know that it's going to take a good, you know, three or four weeks before somebody even looks at their resume. And I think, you know, as an industry, we need to do a better job of informing people what the process is. So those are the things that really excite me. What about after, let's say, you, they say they, they're interested in the job, and how does the interview go? Can you be interviewed online as well, or do you have to go there, or can be a virtual interview, or how does that work? Yeah, it depends on the employer's process. Um, some employers will use a video interviewing technology. Um, some employers will just want to keep it paper. Uh, a lot of employers now are starting to use um, LinkedIn as a resource. So instead of having to send a full paper resume over, you know, electronically, then um, you can actually just send over your LinkedIn profile and references through LinkedIn. Yeah, so it's that that sort of I guess that process is kind of emerging. It depends on the company, is. is what you're saying. Absolutely. They each have, yeah, the, yeah, the and I, a lot of it's being driven by mobile and the fact that people, you know candidates want to be able to respond off their mobile phone, but they don't have the ability to fill out you know a four page application on their cell phone. So what do you see for the future? I mean, are, there, are certain you know? I, I, it seems like it's changing. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I honestly, uh, one of the things I think is is really exciting is when you start to look at tracking, um, you know, candidates and when you onboard them, what happens to them and kind of the mobility of workforce. Um, One of the things I think is definitely going to come down the pipeline is kind of hot mapping where, you know, niche pockets of talent lie and, and having employers be able to reach into those niche pockets to pull them into their organization because, like I mentioned, you know, I really think the market's shifting um, and becoming more and more, you know, on the candidate side and um, being driven by the candidates. So I think as that continues to shift, you're going to see a lot of competition between employers, and it's going to be more and more important to be able to access those, uh, you know, groups of people quickly. I want to mention it again because you Dash me. Is that the right website? Yes, yes. Digi Dash me is our website, and um, employers can go on there and check out our product, or and candidates can go on and register. And of course, it's always free for the candidates to to use our technology. Have you had any? I mean, this is I probably shouldn't end. This is being the last question, but any major complaints or anything that you've had to deal with, either through the employee or through the the person who's the job seeker. No, not really, because um, we we really made sure that our technology was um, you know above and beyond before we we formally released it. So um, you know we didn't have any issues with glitches at all. Well, I think the government needed you for that. <laughs> <laughs> we've care. actually worked. We've actually worked with some government organizations, actually. <laughs> well, I, I think they you don't give up because they really need you. If you're talking about you launched this thing without any glitches, um, I'm impressed. <laughs> they, uh, we did a, we did quite a bit of beta testing, and we're lucky enough to have some awesome customers who are willing to you know allow us to work with them to beta test early on too. So. Yeah, well, you're working with these major, huge companies, and as you, the founder is uh, from Procter and Gamble, right? That's what you said initially. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, we like organizations like Hartford Insurance, um, USG Corporation. They've just been phenomenal customers, and as we've grown and built out our technology, they've been more than excited to you know be part of it and to um, you know try out new things with us. So, yeah, well, you're working with the big guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely fun. That's great. Well, okay. Well, keep us obviously, you know, keep us informed because I can see this thing is really moving. It continues to move and continues to really evolve. And I guess with new technology, it will evolve even more. Yes, exactly. And I'd love to offer any of the employers that you have listening today. We do have an offer to try our technology on the homepage of the Digi Dash Me website. So if they want to check us out, um, they can they can do that through the radio offer. Great. Thanks so much, Lindsay. Lindsay Stanton, Digi Dash Me. That's fantastic. Great business. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.